Hey kids, it's Todd McFarlane! I'm Tom Pannery, so this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do, okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around is G.I. Joe number 60, which was released on March 10th, 1987 with a June 1987 cover date and a cover price of $1. The cover, which is by Mike Zeck and Joseph Rubenstein, shows Hawk holding a shotgun while standing near the surf as a new character named Zanzibar flies behind him on some sort of hover thing and fires a small missile from a gun. Hawk looks good, but Zanzibar basically looks like... Well, remember the character Extrano or Extrano from the New Guardians? Yeah, Zanzibar looks like his Marvel counterpart, even though this comic actually predates Millennium by at least six months. Anyway, the story is called Cross Purposes, and our credits are as follows. Larry Hama, writer, Todd McFarlane, penciler, Andy Mashinsky, inker, Bob Sharon, coloring, Joe Rosen, lettering, Bob Harris, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We open at Newark International Airport in New Jersey, where an MP named Law and his dog named Order, yes, Law and Order, are with Lieutenant Falcon, and they are there to pick up General Hawk. However, Hawk doesn't know that they're there to pick him up, and he's not too happy when he's taken away in their jeep. Meanwhile, in the Jersey marshes, Buzzsaw and Zorana head to the Dreadnought's old hideout and see that Monkey Wrench and Zanzibar are siphoning the gas out of their gas tank, which Zanzibar explains that he sold to Zartan and is stealing back. Buzzsaw and Zorana start beating the two of them up, but then stop when Zanzibar says that he's got information that might be useful to Zartan. Near the Jersey Shore, Falcon and Law bring Hawk to an abandoned shore resort, where he is introduced to a guy in a Hawaiian shirt named Chuckles, and a guy in a blast suit and a blast-proof suit named Fast Draw. Hawk is not happy, and he refuses to shake anyone's hand, saying that he doesn't shake hands with kidnappers. After a moment, Falcon has Chuckles explain who they are. Chuckles is Army Intelligence, and they are all essentially a deep cover unit that was told they were part of the G.I. Joe team and were supposed to guard a top-secret missile that had been hidden in this run-down, abandoned resort. Moreover, Chuckles, as part of his Army Intelligence work, has discovered that there are some shady dealings going on in the Pentagon and some high-ranking officials are involved. At the Pentagon, those high-ranking officials meet and discuss the fact that they have discovered that Chuckles has brought Hawk into his operation. 
They say that they have to, quote, activate the remote. And we head back to Jersey, where Chuckles mentions that the missile is aimed at Cobra Island. It's just then when an old woman seemingly walks in looking for the casino. But this is no old woman, it's Zarana. And she and the Dreadnoughts attack, and then the missile begins moving toward the beach, which means that it's been remotely activated to launch. The fight continues both in the street and on the beach. Buzzsaw heads toward the Cobra Embassy in New York City to warn his superiors that there is a missile pointed at Cobra Island. And back on the beach, the fight continues with the Dreadnoughts gaining the upper hand. The missile, however, does launch, but it doesn't get very far because it's shot down by a Cobra helicopter which then picks up the Dreadnoughts. Hawk congratulates the guys on their work and says as far as he's concerned, they're all real Joes. Chuckles then heads to the Pentagon where he barges into the offices of the shady higher-ups, and it looks like he's going to pull out a gun, but he just pulls out a pen and says, that's to sign your resignations, implying that he'll be blowing the lid on their operation very soon. I guess I should address the elephant in the room before getting to my review of the actual story, but which is the fact that this is the issue that was penciled by Todd McFarlane. This is relatively early McFarlane, although it comes right after his run on uh, Infinity Incorporated over at DC in the, the, the very beginning of his run on The Incredible Hulk. Around the same time, he would pencil the last three parts of Batman Year 2, and by the end of the year, he would start his run on The Amazing Spider-Man, which helped cement his reputation. I don't think I knew who he was at the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't and probably only knew the name of Larry Hama because his name was in every issue of the series. But I do know that I bought this at the stationery store instead of the comic store. Not because it flew off the shelves or anything, but because I wasn't a regular at the store yet, so I simply missed it. But since the stationery store held on to some of the comics a little longer, I was able to pick it up. Anyway... When I was in my comics collecting heyday of the 90s, this issue is one of the few that went for a decent amount of money, beyond, of course, the very early issues. And that's because it was penciled by McFarlane. I don't think I sold my copy for anything. In fact, I don't know what I actually did to my copy. Um, it probably had like a rolled spine. It was all cracked anyway, but and it probably got thrown out or something. At any rate, I'm reading this out of the... IDW classic G.I. Joe reprints trade and I would like to really compliment the reprint because the coloring looks really crisp in a way that you don't often get from 80s era reprints. It looks like they took the time to clean this up and according to the trade paperback credits the the color was digitally remastered by Digicore Studios Limited so props to them. And honestly props to Todd McFarlane because the art in this issue is actually really good. I have friends in the podcasting community who really can't stand McFarlane. Hi, Rob. But my personal feelings on his artwork have always been mixed. I don't think that some of his stuff has aged very well. But there is other stuff that holds up. And to be honest, I think that a lot of it has to do with inking. When McFarlane has a capable inker, especially during this time period, the art is really tight and has the dynamic feel that made him who he is. When he inks himself, there's a serious decline in quality. A good example of that is from work right around this time, the same time of this issue, which is the three issues of Detective Comics that he did, Batman Year Two. Now, I personally would have loved to have seen Alan Davis do the art on all four parts of this because I love Alan Davis's Batman. But that has, you know, that was not to be. And uh, McFarlane took over the penciling chores with Part 2. For Parts 2 and 3 of Batman Year 2, he's inked by Alfredo Alcala. For Part 4, he inks himself. And there's a marked difference in the art 
and part four, uh, with the exception of a couple of pages, really is not as good as the other two parts. In this issue, he's by inked by Andy Mashinsky, who has been a fairly regular inker for G.I. Joe by this time, and obviously has a feel for the characters and the artwork uh, that's needed, so he conforms McFarlane's pencils to the G.I. Joe house style pretty well. Moreover, with both McFarlane and Mashinsky, uh, well, they do a pretty good job at making each of the new characters look not only distinct, but just like their toys. I realize that isn't saying much, considering that this isn't likenesses or anything like that, as if it were like Star Wars or anything, but you do want a fair amount of consistency between the toys and the comic books. They weren't easy to mess up, of course, Law wears a vest and an MP hat. Falcon is dressed in fatigues and a green beret. Zanzibar is, well, Zanzibar is pretty ridiculous, to be honest with you. But Chuckles Chuckles honestly looks like he could be played by Brian Dennehy. So as I was reading this issue, I pictured all of his dialogue as being said by Brian Dennehy, and it totally worked. It's not just the characters that make the art more or less solid. It's the action is well done. It has to be, since it's pretty much most of the issue. I mean, all that happens is a hawk gets snatched at the airport, a MacGuffin device is introduced, the Dreadnoughts attack, they fight over the MacGuffin device, and the MacGuffin device is eventually destroyed. The fight lasts a pretty long time, and they actually make it dynamic. Buzzsaw escape from the fight that involves him driving like a maniac through the Holland Tunnel, which is damn near impossible if you've ever driven in and out of New York City, and into the Cobra Building in New York, like literally into the building, so he can alert them about the missile and actually save the day, in a sense, is brilliant. It's really well done, and I really like it, because I can picture it actually like as part of maybe even the cartoon. And that's how That's how well done it was. And it actually, believe it or not, from a certain point of view, makes him the hero of the story. Kind of. It's really good. It's it's one that I actually didn't think I would like after all these years. I figured, because like I said, I have a very short window with G.I. Joe Comics. I bought issues 59 to 66. My actual experience of a continuous run of the comic starts with about issue 46 and ends with 66 plus yearbook 3 is in there. I think I read yearbook 2 and maybe issue 45 and a few years beforehand, but, like, there were pretty... And in that time, there were pretty two pretty long-running storylines. The first one had more or less wrapped up by this point, and the next one would start in the very next issue, and issue number 60 really had very little to nothing to do with what was going on in the rest of the comic. So this never feel, really felt like it was belong. Like I said, you could skip issue 50, 60 and do 59 and 61, and that's, well, it was more or less of a villain. There's some interesting trivia that I'll take us out with, courtesy of Brian, Brian Cronin and Comic Book Legends Revealed. So the comic legend is, Marvel once did a special G.I. Joe comic made up of a comic by Todd McFarlane that was deemed unacceptable by Marvel only a few years earlier. True. Status is true. Reader Billy Ray asked me about this a ways back toward the end of last year, but I could not really help him out as I did not have the issue in question either until recently. As it turns out, this certainly was quite an interesting speculation situation. Some readers might recall that Todd McFarlane was slowly breaking into Marvel Comics in the late 1980s, and among the work he did was a fill-in issue of G.I. Joe, specifically number 60. What is not well known, however, is that McFarlane actually drew the issue, the next issue as well. For whatever reason, though, McFarlane's issue was deemed unacceptable, so venerable veteran, the late great Marshall Rogers, was brought in to draw the issue, and that was G.I. Joe number 61. Rogers was asked back as he would go on to draw two more issues of Joe in the next couple of years. 
1994, this title was no longer the top seller. It was in the mid to late 80s when it was routinely Marvel's top-selling comic book. It even had a spin-off, G.I. Joe Special Missions. So with issue number 155, Marvel ended the book. However, in the time between number 61 and the book ending in 155, a funny thing had happened. The young and experienced fill-in artist, Todd McFarlane, had gone off and become a major comic book artist superstar. So now, somehow the same pages that were considered unacceptable in 1987 were good enough to be published for the first time in a G.I. Joe special coming two months after the cancellation of the series. And then, then he offers some uh, covers, uh, a side-by-side comparison of the five pages from McFarlane's unaccepted take on Larry Hama's script, and Marshall's, uh, Roger, Mar- Marshall Rogers' accepted one. And uh, Cronin says, yeah, Rogers did seem to do a better job and um, then he says, edits to add, I apologize for being unclear here, but it appears as though I'm knocking McFarlane's work, but by better, I only mean that Rogers seemed to better match the style that G.I. Joe comics were using at the time, which was very straightforward storytelling. I think McFarlane's work isn't bad. Rogers' work actually looks quite rushed, and it almost certainly was. But I just think he achieved a more standard G.I. Joe approach based on the books, how the books like back then. All in all, it's a weird situation through and through. So that's the story behind it. So it was a fill-in issue. McFarlane was supposed to draw the next one, and, and you, you heard about Marshall Rogers. And I'll eventually get to G.I. Joe number 61. And it's one of my favorite issues of the series. Uh, but for now, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back just after this. Xenophiles, a fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. I may or may not have some sort of social anxiety. I say this because I've never actually gone and seen a doctor about this. But there have been many times in my life where the thought of actually going to a party made me incredibly nervous to the point where I would think of reasons not to go. And if I didn't punk out, would spend the entire way home from the party mentally debriefing myself, figuring out if I said anything offensive or embarrassing. Naturally, this was all in my head. It's likely that nobody at the party actually paid attention to anything I was doing, but that reality isn't something I always perceive. I start with this because I didn't have this problem when I was a kid. In fact, I didn't have this problem probably until I was a teenager. Granted, I went to very few parties when I was a teenager, and at those I was invited to spend most of the time trying not to, well, be seen as awkward as I tend to be and embarrass myself. But even with my relative lack of party experience, there were some that I remember as being, well, milestones of my youth. Uh, As much as parties can be milestones of one's youth. Um, There was my friend Harris's bar mitzvah. There was my friend Tom Perillo's graduation party, which is the first time I actually got drunk. There was my 
there's a party my RA threw during my senior year of college where he and his roommates literally filled their kitchen with sand and created a beach. There's a party that my wife and I threw in our apartment in Arlington just before we moved to Charlottesville in 2004. Those are the good ones. I'm sure that if I could think of parties at which I did something stupid or embarrassing, I could tell stories. But the particular memory I'm mining here is a good one today, so there'll be none of that. This party was my friend Tom Hackett's 10th birthday party. It was in March of 1987. It was a sleepover party, and to my recollection, the very first sleepover party I ever went to. There would be a few more over the years, but this is the one I remember being the, the most because there were probably about five or six of us, and we all essentially camped out in his living room, ate pizza, and watched TV. Which I realize doesn't sound like a particularly exciting par- party, but the huge thing about this was that it was the first time I ever stayed up past midnight. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we were supposed to go to sleep at some point, but for the most part, we all stayed up until about 5 o'clock in the morning. It was in the days before any of us had a video game system. Uh, I'm sure one of my friends had an Atari, but for a lot of us, the first video game system we would ever get would be the, the Nintendo, and uh, those were just starting to become more affordable at that time. Tom would get one for his 11th birthday. I would get one for mine. At this point in time, we were all still playing G.I. Joe's, and we are about to get really into reading the comics. In fact, that's what I remember the most about this party and why I'm talking about it on this podcast. Tom had a decent pile of comics. He lived closer to the comic store than I did, and at the time, comics had just got up to a dollar after being 75 cents each, so he had books he had been buying for at least a year. And Since we were all complete novices with comics collecting, they were just more or less strewn about his living room. We could flip through them as much as we wanted to. I remember skimming a lot of Transformers comics as well as a few of the G.I. Joes that directly preceded this one. In fact, I remember already having issue 59 at home and thinking it was cool to read about how Cobra Commander got his armor. A figure I would get and uh, then think was awesome, but in retrospect, I really did like the hooded Cobra Commander figure better. Uh, And I also liked the original masked one. I had the original hooded Cobra Commander figure, by the way. I I got it from like a mail away or something. Anyway, back to the comics, um, I remember that this is where I learned how much Marvel was diverting from the Transformers cartoon, which had more or less started to run its course by 1987. They had introduced characters like Circuit Breaker, there was an appearance by Spider-Man at one point. I don't think he saved that issue, by the way, which is a shame because it was one of the more valuable issues for the series for a number of years. This got me wanting to go to the comic book store and actually flip through the back issue bins, which up until that point I'd always wondered about but never really looked through. It's the comic book equivalent of going to a friend's house or sitting in an older sibling's room and hearing them play a record or tape of some band you'd never heard of and instantly saying to yourself, I want more of that. I knew comics existed. I knew the comic store existed. But I'd never been around so many at once. And more than just one of us sat there at times that night reading the comics or at least flipping through them between smacking each other with pillows, watching whatever we could find on television. That wasn't much. I don't think Tom had cable yet. I also got chicken pox out of that party, by the way. A couple of us did. Which is totally by accident. I think one of Tom's brothers came down with it like right after the party. So one by one, we got it. Years later, I'd read about chi- parents actually holding what they call chicken pox parties, which was where they get kids together with friends who had the virus in order to give them the chicken pox, which sounds insane, but that's the kind of stupid crap that middle-class suburban parents think of when they really have nothing better to do with their lives. 
Tom would have the same party the following year. I had fun at that. It was more subdued. We played as Nintendo. We wound up getting to sleep for most of the night. But that's the case with a lot of experiences like that. You have the Rager that gets this legendary status. And trust me, that was a legendary status for a group of 9 and 10 year old boys. And when you try to recreate it, it just doesn't happen. Uh, But he would become my comic book friend, or one of my comic book friends for the time period I'm covering here. He'd also be one of my best friends through the rest of elementary school and junior high and into high school as we got into baseball and pro wrestling and action movies, just a lot of other stuff together. But he was the one who actually told me to buy the next issue of G.I. Joe. Like I said, I'd already bought issue 59, but at some point I remember when he told me about what the main plot was. He's like, you gotta get it, it's so good. And that book, which I'll be taking a look at the beginning of April along with two other comics was pretty awesome. And it started what is my all-time favorite G.I. Joe storyline. So for all my future issues with attending parties, many of which pop up, I've avoided a few social gatherings with people and class reunions over the last couple of decades. This one was one that proved memorable enough to actually be important in some way. Would the next comic prove important? I can't say if Transformers number 29 was really that big of a deal, but that's what I'm going to check out in about a week. But until then, uh, check me out on the blog, on Facebook. Uh, You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Leave an iTunes review. It'll help the show get more visibility and or or comment uh, over wherever I've I've posted this and retweeted. I appreciate anybody who's retweeted this. uh, Coffee and Comics blog. Uh... Ryan Daly, uh, oh god, I'm blanking. A bunch of some people who are like, you know, kind of like second or third friends with them, two or three degrees away, retweet this when when TTF posts it. I really appreciate that, and uh, I've been I've been enjoying this. So uh, if you want to comment, if you want to email, you want to send me something my way, um, I'll eventually get around to maybe reading a couple on the air. But until then, um, I will be back uh, in about a week with Transformers number 29. And uh, thanks for listening and take care.